0: Hi everyone and welcome to the podcast of the Center for the Advanced Study of India or CASI at the University of Pennsylvania. My name is Gotham Nayar and I am a postdoctoral fellow with CASI. I'm delighted to be joined today on the podcast by Professor Rina Agarwala, who is an associate professor of sociology at Johns Hopkins University. She conducts research on how vulnerable populations, particularly workers, assert their rights through social movements. Professor Agarwala is the author of a book, Informal Labor, Formal Politics, and Dignifying Discontent in India. And she is at work on a second book titled, Managing Immigrants, sorry, Emigrants, which will be the topic of our conversation today. Welcome, Reena, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Gautam.
0: So what got you interested in this topic and what is the gap in our understanding that you seek to remedy in this project?
1: Yeah, so what got me into the topic was actually my first project where I looked at informal workers' politics within India. And I found, quite um, contrary to my own expectations, that despite all the predictions that informal workers in India are the most vulnerable, they're not regulated, they're not legally allowed to organize, I found that they actually have historically organized and in many cases have succeeded in getting the state to uh, attend to some of their welfare demands using their electoral power, electoral politics, um, or the power of their electoral politics. Um, and it became clear to me by the end of that project that that citizenship played a very central role in workers' structural power in India. Um, and I began to wonder what would happen if those workers are actually working in a country where they are not citizens. Will the Indian government at the national or subnational level still uh, bother to meet their needs for electoral reasons? And so at the same time, that was one of my motivations, but at the same time, there was a lot of interest among migration scholars globally in uh, what was seen as sort of a rising trend among many sending countries where a lot of sending countries in the 90s and 2000s were suddenly paying a lot of attention to emigrants as a source of global funding. And so I joined a project that was a global project made up of mainly Latin Americanists who wanted to get scholars of Asia to examine globally how are sending countries managing these out migrants. And in the case of India, a lot of the focus was on the rise of the high-skilled migrants that were exiting India during the dot-com boom. And there was a sort of euphoria around the potential for them to bring back FDI to India, bring back a lot of knowledge transfer, um, bring back a whole bunch of philanthropic donations. There was a lot of excitement around this at the time of the turn of the millennium. So these two projects, I got involved in that one project focusing on high-skill migrants. I had a personal passion looking at the low skilled workers in India. And by ha- these two sort of projects that came at the same time exposed for me a real gap in the migration literature and the migration scholarship, which was that we tend not to look at emigrants leaving India in- by class. We tend to either focus on the high-skill migrants going out of India or the low-skilled workers residing within India. And left out of this mix were the millions and millions of low-skilled workers who were also leaving India as migrants. So I became quite interested to understand, what are the politics of these low-skilled migrants? Are they similar to the low-skilled workers in India, or are they joining forces with the high-skilled migrants in the U.S., etc.? And that's how this project came
0: out. That's fascinating. So, and, and what's really novel about your research, I thought, was that we often think about conflict, about immigration in receiving countries in the West. So, populist backlash against immigrants, for example. Um, and the second part, as you just mentioned, was about uh, this duality in in immigration, which is or in emigration, pardon me, with an e, which is not something that we often think about. So, so tell me about the main argument that you seek to make in this book.
1: Yeah. So, well, let me also just reiterate the point you made. So once I started this project, I basically had to get involved in a literature that was very new for me. And like I said, I'm, I'm more familiar with the labor literature and I'm familiar with the Indian development literature. And neither of those literatures ironically tend to look at emigration. Um, So then I turned to the migration literature. And what was ironic with the migration literature is, as you just said, it focuses on the receiving countries. So looking at sending countries and workers going out of sending countries was something that I felt needed to be bridged. And so what I try and showcase in this book um, is that Migration, out-migration, has actually served as a very understudied vector through which the sending state, in this case the Indian government, is able to foment or foster a particular type of development ideology back at home. So in other words, although in development, we tend not to look at migration, I'm trying to argue that migration actually plays a very important role in shaping local development ideologies. And in the case of India, and I trace this from the 1920s to the present, so it's trying to divorce emigration from um, the contemporary period of neoliberalism and to look at emigration as something that has long existed. Um, And I trace, in the case of India, that the Indian state has often used emigration policies to foment a sort of class differentiated development ideology over time. What does that mean? It means that very explicitly, the Indian government has always maintained different emigration rules and regulations for different classes of migrants. And so they would have a particular set of rules and regulations for low-skill migrants, which were entirely different from those for high-skill migrants, and that continues to this day. And the fact that this could occur in a democratic context of equal citizenship without much debate or discussion ever to me was quite fascinating. Um, So one thing I show is that it has continuously operated as this class distinguishing um, feature for development ideology. But I also argue that emigration has helped the Indian government transition their development ideologies at moments when transition was necessary. So from colonialism to Fabian socialism and Fabian socialism to the contemporary period of globalization.
0: Okay, great. And so I think that's a nice segue into talking about how you did this research. So you look at three phases and you want to emphasize, I think, that it's not just the current period that you're looking at, but really there's a long history of emigration and a long history of government policy being used to manage that immigration, uh, which is very much distinguished by class. Correct?
1: Correct. Nice.
0: Okay. Absolutely. So <laughs> and, and, and what are the three phases? If you can tell me about that again. So I
1: look at from the 1940s. 20s to the 40s, I call it the colonial phase, where emigration was used by the colonial government. Low skilled and high skilled emigration was fostered and facilitated to foment capitalist accumulation back in the empire, of course. Okay. But the next phase is then the phase, the regime of uh, Fabian socialism, which takes us from the 40s through the 70s. Um, And that was an era where actually the Indian government explicitly forbid the emigration of low-skilled migrants in order to retain its image locally as a protector of vulnerable labor, as well as its global image as a self-sufficient nation that doesn't need to rely on other countries for employment. Um, but what was also interesting about that phase is while they forbid low-skilled immigration, they allowed high-skilled immigration to take place. So this was an explicit distinction on class in terms of your right to move, which is a constitutional right, as we all hear about today locally, but yet they forbid the external Right to move for low skilled migrants. Um, they allowed those of high skilled migrants, but they had a quite a distinct policy for the high skilled migrants that once they left, they were ignored. So they were not a group that was fomented as a political actor that should then be encouraged to give back to India. It was a group that was seen as you've left India good riddance. Um, And then the third phase comes about from the 1980s to the present, and that is the phase of globalization and liberalization, which actually started, as we know, in the 80s, not officially, but slowly. And migration, once again, had an important role to play in that transition. So it was in the early 80s that low-skill migration was, on one hand, legalized, but Contrary to popular belief, it wasn't just an easy liberalization. It was in fact a very, very restricted and government regulated legalization. So entire institutions and policies were put into place to completely control who gets to go, where they get to go, a very, very arduous process of getting stamps and clearances in your passport to, you know, um, in order to leave, all of that was only subjected to, again, on the low-skilled immigrants. Meanwhile, the high-skilled immigrants were not only still allowed to leave but they were actually encouraged, recognized as a political actor and then encouraged to give back to India. So there was a huge amount of new bank accounts, new schemes, new bonds, specific, even the category, the term, the legal term NRI was developed to create a political actor and bring back what was hoped to be their economic returns. In effect, what actually happened was that The economic returns from the high-skilled immigrants have been quite low, especially compared to other countries, but the social and political returns have been quite high. So they have had a high degree of social remittances that include knowledge transfers, advice on deregulation, advice on privatization, advice on reforming India's tax codes so that we could increase philanthropic donations, um, and of course political donations for political parties. On the... On the low-skilled side, India has now become the largest remittance-receiving country in the world. They get an enormous amount of remittances that have offset trade balances. They have averted crises after crises. Many state districts have 40% dependency on these remittances. The amount of remittance money coming in is higher than the software exports of India, Um, but it is actually invisible it's tagged as a line of invis- called invisibles in the current accounts and the people behind those remittances have absolutely no voice or visibility
0: right and uh what was the figure again of the amount of remittances just to bring that point home
1: oh uh i believe What's now it's about 15 billion dollars oh. i have to actually look it up now i had it in front of me but um it is the highest in the world, and it has been for some years now. Okay.
0: Um, and you use no, a very... W-
1: Sorry, it's $72
0: billion. Right. Right, right. Um, $72 billion. And, and you use a very wide variety of data sources in order to make these points, correct? Can you just describe some of that work?
1: Yeah. So I, again, because the migration literature has focused so much on this so-called sort of post-80s, post-90s neoliberal era, what I wanted to do was divorce migration from the neoliberal era. So the first thing I do is an archival analysis from the 1920s to the present, where I looked at every single parliamentary debate, presidential speech, and budget of at the national level to understand what was the state discussion what was the statecraft going on in fomenting these very class distinct immigration policies over time. Then I looked, I did interviews, in-depth interviews with government officials at the national level, but I also went down to the sub-national level because although the national level is in charge of immigration policies and citizenship, it's the sub-national level that is in charge of welfare, labor, as well as cultural and social identity making. Um, So I looked, I then did in-depth interviews with government officials and I looked at three states, Kerala, UP, uh, sorry, not UP, Kerala, AP and Gujarat. And then I did um, about 65 interviews with low-skill migrants of organizations in, uh, that had gone to the Middle East, and I did about 75 interviews with high-skill migrants that have formed organizations in the U.S. Um, and then finally, I supplemented all of that with interviews about 20 interviews with recruiters. So recruiters are another set of actors in the migration industry that are completely invisible. And there's been very little study on them. It's not the absolute topic of the book, but I felt I had to include them in order to understand because all the interactions that happen between the government and low skill migrants happen through this middleman of the recruiters, which okay. are... Great.
0: And where do you see... Uh, still major gaps in our understanding of immigration. So where would you like more work to be done uh, based on what you found so far?
1: Yeah, so I think the thing that has blown me away the most, maybe this is not a call for scholars, but a call more for the activists, is that the gap in politics between labor activists and labor scholars versus migrants. Organism, migrant activists and migrant scholars. The two do not speak. And I found that mind-blowing, especially because I come from the labor world. Um, I, I started by talking to unions. And unions just don't... Uh, recruit migrant workers, emigrant workers who leave India. They don't view them as laborers. They don't view them as having the same needs as as domestic workers. Similarly, migrant organizations don't identify as workers. their identity is very much framed as we are migrants, we're immigrants, Um, we're we're heroes, we're almost like war heroes. They they side more with teaming up with veterans, war veterans than they do with domestic laborers. So I think one of the sort of startling gaps for me, less in knowledge creation and more in politics, was this complete gap between um, the framing of two types of workers. Um, between migrant workers on one hand, international migrant workers on one hand, and domestic workers on the other. Um, And in both cases, they could be migrants. It could be domestic migrants versus versus international migrants, but they don't meet. Um, And I found that quite startling. It's it's not an area that I get into in the book, but I think it's an area that needs to be bridged um, between labor scholars and migrant scholars, as well as labor activists and migrant activists. The second thing I think is that I think we just need much more attention to the fact that on the migrant side, migrants are not one entity. That the government has for, you know, nearly a century been seeing migrants as two distinct classes. They've imposed distinct regulations on two groups of citizens just by base, on the basis of their class. And that is something that is not allowed (laughs) in any other sphere of Indian politics and somehow is allowed in the sphere of migration. And I think we need much more work to be done on exposing the class distinctions being made among migrants from a policy perspective and why that's happening and more sort of pushing for public contestation of that distinction.
0: Great. So I think we'll stop there, Professor Agrawala. Thank you so much for a very enlightening talk and podcast. And we look forward to reading the book when it comes out. Thank you so
1: much.